The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 49 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So I got so much positive feedback on the show last week with Paul Jackson. I've actually asked him to co-host the show with Tom and I from time to time. So good afternoon to brothers Paul and Tom. They're both on with us tonight. Good afternoon. Hey. It's great to be back. Great to be back. Great to be back. With yeah, great. Day. So I think, you know, Paul, we asked you to come back. Tom and I were talking. We asked you to come back because you make us sound a lot smarter than we really are. With that British accent you got going on. Yeah, I try my best, George. <laughs> so we had a great show last week, especially if you're in law enforcement or the cybercrime space. Lots of old friends from J.P. Morgan Chase coming out of the shadows on social media to comment on this one. You know, we had a few comments from uh, a few people from all over the world. We had Deepak Kumar, the chairperson of the National Cyber Defense Research Center out of the New, New Delhi in India. We had Samuel English Kershaw, an information security and risk executive with Zero Day Lab out of Edinburgh in the United Kingdom, the homeland for you, Paul. So uh, I think we had my, my buddy Warren Cruz. Everybody knows Warren as a vice president with Concilio out of New York. And uh, Michael Mimo, which I think we all know here on this, on this call, the chief security officer. You know Mike really well, don't you, Paul? I know Mike really well. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening. <laughs> He's the chief security officer for Copyright Clearance Center out of Boston. All commenting on how great the show was before they even listened to it. So they were saying how much they were anticipating listening to the show. Lots of comments that came out before the show. That's never happened before. So I guess your reputation precedes yourself, Paul. Yeah. Uh, well, don't know what to say to that, but thanks, George. So, so uh, Mike's a great guy. He's very supportive of the show. He's been very supportive on social media. If you missed last, missed last week's show, it's a, it was a very interesting to learn about Paul's career path and how he was uh, out in Hong Kong pretending to be Crockett and Tubbs chasing, you know, the bad guys on speedboats and stuff. And then he actually joined the, the, the global cybersecurity fight. So I wouldn't miss it, folks. It's never too late. I urge you to find your favorite playback medium and check it out. Paul Action Jackson on last week's episode. That's episode number 48 of Task Force 7 Radio. That's, I've been dying to call you that for so long. Action Jackson. <laughs> oh, <thank laughs> you know, that, that's probably going to stick, right? 
<laughs> you finally can, George. Nice. <laughs> if that sticks on social media, I'm going to laugh. So, look, you can find TF7 Radio on nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and, of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at voiceamerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out. TF7 radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. We're seeing a lot of good subscribers out there. We're getting a lot of five stars. Appreciate you giving us a good rating. Thanks for listening, folks. So tonight we have another former colleague and good friend of mine on the show, and it's really going to be a lot of fun because he's a former Secret Service agent, and we have three former law enforcement officers hosting the show tonight. So if you're into cybercrime, folks, tonight's show is going to get you all jacked up, right? I mean, there's none other than Robert Villanueva will be with us tonight. So Robert currently leads the Cyber Threat Intelligence Division of Q6 Cyber. He's very in tune with the latest cyber threats that we we're facing, so we're going to ask him a lot of questions about that. But before joining Q6, Robert was a special agent with the United States Secret Service where he founded the Secret Service's Cyber Intelligence Section. And so Tom and I, being former Secret Service agents, know how cool that is. I mean, we only have Tier 1 people on the show, folks. This is a Tier 1 program, all right? We don't mess around. Robert was with the Secret Service for 25 years where he specialized in transnational cyber crimes, access device fraud, network intrusions, and identity theft data breaches affecting the private sector. So during his tenure, Robert was assigned to various offices. He worked out of Miami. He worked in Europe. He was in Latin America for a while. And of course, he was with the mothership in Washington, D.C. And he served both in the investigative and undercover capacities around the world. So uh, we're going to get a, a lot of cool stories out of him tonight. It's going to be a really good show. And I don't think you hear this kind of show anywhere, folks. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but they don't have these kind of guests. And you're not going to hear this kind of real-world uh, information about what really goes on in law enforcement and the cyber underground. So, Robert has also headed the U.S. Secret Service Miami Electronic Crimes Task Force, which counts about 800 members from the private sector, academia, and local federal law enforcement. And he's conducted extensive research on computer botnets and malware deployments attributed to foreign actors. I mean, he's, he's, he's been working numerous projects in the past with the Secret Service in partnership with Stanford and Carnegie Mellon and, and other various private sector companies. And he's on the board of directors of a whole bunch of places, uh, including Florida International University, the, the Florida International Security Association, uh, the Florida International Bankers Association. Basically, if you're in Florida and you don't know Robert, there's an issue, right? I'd have some self-reflection at this point. And also the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. Okay, I, I could just go on and on. Robert's list of accomplishments is way too long for radio. I kind of pushed it. I think that's enough. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Robert Villanueva. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, George. Hey, I'm you glad know? you're here, man. I'm glad we I could all sync up. So uh, you worked with Tom and I for a while. I mean, you know, Tom's in San Francisco. Robert's in Miami. I'm in New York. And Paul's in Hong Kong. And somehow we all know each other very well. It's crazy, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's crazy. How are you doing, Tom? Paul? I'm doing great, man. Uh, I'll just say the funny thing, too, George, is I think uh, we're all in these different areas, and uh, all of us have probably been on almost every continent together at some point or another. So it's kind of an international group here. Yeah, yeah I mean, most, 
It feels like a small world, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's just like cybercrime. Right? There's no borders when it comes to cybercrime, especially international cybercrime. So there's no borders when it comes to your show either, George, right? That's right. That's right. This is a global show. We've got, got a big international audience. And just, you know, there's a few people that I hadn't read of the, some of the comments that we had on, on Paul's show last week. I mean, they're all over the place, right? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we have a global audience here. But, Robert, I mean, you're the real deal, my friend. I mean, fighting the good fight, decades of experience, battling the bad guys around the world, especially out of Miami, which one of the, one of those happening cities in the world. So I want to kick off with Miami. I mean, tell us about Miami and some of the international counterfeit and credit card fraud cases you were working on down there. Well, first, first of all, I was very fortunate to have a very uh, fruitful career and was very fortunate to be part of the, the United States Secret Service for so many years. Um, like you said, I just retired, you know, a couple of years ago after 25 years of service. Um, and the training that I received and the opportunities that I, that I had and the experiences and the people I met too, by the way, uh, within, within the service and other law enforcement agencies around the world uh, is priceless. So to, you know, start off in Miami, that's where I started my career back in 1990. And um, I was, uh, back then in the 90s, was a little different, especially down in South Florida, because as you guys know, and would expect there's a lot of uh, uh, drug trafficking, a lot of uh, cartels working in South Florida, uh, along with the ones in South America. So we used to run across a lot of uh, drug activity, work a lot very closely with DEA, uh, with ATF, uh, with other local police agencies too, because um, the Secret Service, uh, as you guys know, our jurisdiction is primarily um, financial crime and the counterfeiting of U.S. currency and cybercrime and financial crimes in general like credit card fraud, but it all sometimes interconnects when it comes to the, to the drug traffickers. So we used to work a lot out of uh, South Florida, these type of cases, uh, counterfeiting cases, again, associated with um, different types of drug activity, but also covered Central and South America. That was the, Miami was the hub back then in the 90s to work operations and field ops, both uh, proactive operations and undercover operations in South America. So I did a lot of that when I was in Miami. So I don't think a lot of people know that the Secret Service do computer crime and financial crimes. I think when people think of the Secret Service, they think that the, you know, the guys that are, are protecting the president and other heads of state. So a lot of people ask me, you know, wow, would, you were investigating credit card fraud in the Secret Service? And like, yeah, I mean, back then especially, that was huge. I mean, that was huge. I know you worked undercover a lot, I think living a, a life that other people only dream about or really, you know, see on TV or in the movies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe some of the UC counterfeit operations in, in South America or Europe that you worked? Yeah, sure, of course. Um, just in general, I can't get into all the specifics, obviously, regarding any kind of Yep. Detail, per se, um, as you said at the beginning of the show, right, um, regarding, uh, you know, the types of operations that, are, that occurred. But what people don't understand, uh, and, you know, you guys, you, you know, obviously you and Tom know well, and, and Paul also, is that the Secret Service, you know, we're, we have a dual mission, right? And, uh, and as you see, after 25 years, I say, I say we when I'm talking about the Secret Service because it's a part of my life and it will be, you know, the day I die, to be quite frank. Uh, but, um, you know, we do both protection and investigations, right? And everybody's duly, you know, duly trained through the academies we, we attend. Um, and um, the specifics are that under U.S. statutes, specifically 18 U.S.C. Um, 1029, 
um, the Secret Service is authorized and mandated to investigate credit card fraud. And international credit card fraud is a real big deal. Um, we see a lot of it uh, down in South America, meaning uh, back in the 90s, for instance, people were always printing uh, counterfeit credit cards. Um, and then they were distributing it worldwide, you know, and it would come through Miami. So we would work numerous type of cases in, in countries of Colombia, Venezuela. Well, back then, you know, Venezuela was a different place, obviously, than it is now, right? But there was a lot of, uh, a lot of miscreants, like I like to call them, in the, in the border regions between Venezuela and Colombia, make manufacturing counterfeit credit cards and then um, distributing them worldwide through, through Miami as a port of entry in Miami. But we would uh, look at uh, those type of groups, uh, target uh, specific threat actors down there who are counterfeiting the cards, the counterfeit operations of these uh, credit cards, and then actually work with local law enforcement to disrupt and dismantle these uh, counterfeiting uh, manufacturing operations and plants. So we would physically, physically go and uh, down there and actually either through under, uh, undercover means penetrate these organizations um, uh, through different tactics we, that we use, right, as potential buyers, for instance. Um, and then once that occurred and once we identified specific locations in conjunction with the U.S. Embassy uh, in, the, in the country, we would, again, dismantle and uh, take down these counterfeiting operations of credit cards in country. So were these assignments like long, like did you like how long were these assignments? How long were you like undercover for this for this type of stuff? It, it, it would vary, George. It, it, it would depend um, if they were, you know. Usually, at the very least, you know, there was introductions made. If you were an undercover operative, you go in, you would actually, um, you know, meet with certain people, be introduced to certain people. Uh, it's a process. It's like anything else. Um, it doesn't happen like you see in the movies, for instance, right? That you basically meet somebody and, you know, the next day everything is taken down and people are arrested. These were monthly, you know, month-long, multi-month-long operations. Uh, they were sometimes a year, I mean, or two, depending on the sophistication of the actual, of the actual organization. Um, the organizations down in South America, the criminal organizations and the cartels, um, a lot of them actually are into the drug trade because it's very lucrative, but that they also have these sidelines of, again, manufacturing counterfeit credit cards and counterfeit U.S. currency, which is very prevalent. At the time, in the 1990s, um, almost 75% of all the counterfeit produced in the world was coming out of the country of Colombia. Right. So it's pretty, you know, it's pretty significant, the majority. And, and a lot of these people were expert printers. They were, you know, uh, had a family trade. They were, you know, it was a skill set that they had. And they were making counterfeit money in mass, vast quantities and distributing it throughout the world as well. So counterfeit credit cards back then, as well as counterfeit currency was a real big issue. And it was, you know, basically uh, trying to threaten the U.S. economy and the financial infrastructure somewhat. So um, we targeted those individuals, again, for disruption through different means. And I was, you know, fortunate enough to have dismantled a lot of these organizations with a team of great uh, agents out of the Miami field office. So I think, weren't you the, like the assistant country attache at one point, the op supervisor down in Bogota? Yes, yes, yeah, I was. So, sure. so that must have been really interesting. I mean, how long was that Was that gig and what were you doing down there? Yeah, I mean, uh, being that we uh, had so many 
you know, ops going on in, in the country of Colombia itself. Uh, the Secret Service opened a full-time presence, a full-time office down there in the late 1990s. And then they had asked me to go down there full-time because back then we would do a lot of temporary assignments. So you would go for a couple weeks or a couple months and then come back to, you know, back home to Miami. So it was back and forth. So they asked me to go down there full-time and uh, head basically field operations in which I oversaw basically the operations within the country of Colombia, all operations. Um, so I was no longer um, in more of an undercover uh, capacity. I was more of a, as a supervisory field capacity, overseeing the undercover agents like myself that used to go down there uh, in the different ops that were going on in country. So all this credit card frauds going on, all this counterfeit uh, frauds going on, how much do you think of the profits from this type of illicit activity is going towards anti-American activities, anti-Western activities uh, with organized crime and terrorist groups and things like that? Well, um, back then there was a lot of funding and a lot of different types of uh, activity going on, meaning uh, they would use the proceeds, right? of a lot of these uh, right. counterfeiting operations to fund other things. I'll give you a perfect example. Down in South America, there's a tri-border region between Paraguay, Brazil, and um, Argentina, right? And it's uh, a tri-border region in which all three countries actually meet. And there's a place called Ciudad del Este in Paraguay, basically on the border right there. And it's a no man's land. It's, it's, it's a very, um, there's no rules, laws. It's pretty much... Uh, anarchy down there somewhat in this far, as far as people coming in and out of the countries uh, between that tri-border region. A lot of smuggling. There's a really large also Middle Eastern presence down there. Uh, a lot of uh, terrorist groups operating in the area. It's a very well-known fact. You can actually just Google it and find out about it. But back then in the 90s, a lot of the funding that was going on worldwide um, for some of these um, you know, operations and and a lot of things that were going on were coming out of that region. So they were manufacturing counterfeit money in that area. They were manufacturing, you know, counterfeit credit cards in that area and funding a lot of operations. And I can't get into all the specifics about it, but we had obviously a very robust presence. Me, myself, I was there multiple times working, you know, operations in a recovery capacity in that area. So, look, I mentioned in the intro that you were the founder of the cyber intelligence section at Secret Service headquarters. What was that like, and, and how did you have the vision to create that capability, which most organizations now, even in the private sector, at least in places like finance and telecommunications and, and uh, sectors like that, they, they mostly have uh, that capability. It's, it's sort of commonplace, but you, you, you created this a, a long time ago and had the vision of knowing that this, this especially in, in the cyber, has to be intelligence-led uh, strategy. Yeah, well, well, some of the things that I saw, you know, back in the '90s, obviously, when cybercrime wasn't as prevalent, was right. um, the technology of, you know, first it's like cell phone technology. Everybody's carrying the big brick phones back then. Remember those? Yep. Yep. <laughs> So we would actually, you know, look into that and, and uh, you know, do some some clandestine operations involving, you know, those phones and, you know, some of the, it was a big, uh, it was a big infrastructure with those phones and, you know, their capabilities and also what they were doing with them. So I, um, I, I took a liking in general to technology, uh, you know, telecommunications especially, but but also I had a little background, I actually took basic, believe it or not, you know, uh, and had, you know, like computers and. I had a Mac and everything back then, and I just um, 
you know, migrated from that world of counterfeiting into the cybercrime world because of a couple of things. Uh, first, I, you know, I, I left uh, Columbia and then I was transferred uh, to, to Washington, D.C., right? Like you said, the mothership there. So um, the, the Secret Service has a very uh, robust capability to this day, especially as enhanced. But back then, uh, when it came to cyber uh, crime and forensics in general, like computer forensics, so I was looking into that. I was looking at establishing task forces around uh, actually the globe and uh, working with people like Tom out in California when he was with the Secret Service all the time. So we, we saw that, and um, we saw there was a need to actually coordinate a lot of these cases that were developing regarding cybercrime, right? And back then, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, that's where malware proliferation was going on. A, a lot of the uh, viruses were, you know, Trojan viruses were going on, a lot, of, a lot of activity going on. So we saw a lot of cases around the country that needed some coordination somewhat, and that's when we said, well, you know, according to uh, 18 U.C. 1030, right, which is a Computer Crime Act uh, statute, uh, the Secret Service was mandated to investigate, again, computer crime. So um, we met together in the headquarters. I met with our, our assistant director at the time, which was uh, very uh, forward-thinking. And he uh, said, yeah, we need to do this. Um, you have a little background when it comes to, you know, computers. and." Uh, besides that, uh, you've been trained <laughs> when it comes to, uh, to networks and network intrusions. But, but um, the main thing is you have a background in organized crime due to your experiences in South America. And we're seeing, uh, this is back in 2000, a lot of Eastern European cyber criminals actually uh, targeting you know, the U.S. financial infrastructure through cyber crime. So I was kind of the, the good fit to, you know, spearhead this and then came basically put everything together, formed an analysis and an exploitation unit to oversee all types of analysis, whether it was malware analysis, but also attribution, which was very important um, because you need to know who's behind that keyboard, right? So, I mean, just because, you know, you think somebody's uh, being going by a certain nickname online because they all use pseudonyms, right? Nobody uses their real names. But all these, all these uh, threat actors overseas um, were using all types of nicknames. So we need to put uh, analysis behind it. So we hired some very um, intelligent individuals who spoke multiple languages, who also had background in computer sciences, for instance. And we also uh, set up an operational unit, right, which, again, Tom was part of that, uh, that unit out of California, in which we actually sought to not only uh, – have attribution, but also uh, you know identify these people, but also locate them, see where they're at, go after them, try to prosecute them, try to extradite them if possible from foreign countries, but um, at the very least disrupt their criminal activity. So um, I'll get more specifics about some of these cases, but uh, the key was a coordinated effort within the United States Secret Service to actually go proactively after this guy, to do something after these guys who were overseas, who were allegedly untouchable, Right, and thought they were, and they were targeting uh, U.S. banks world in the United States, and going after you know not only the financial institutions themselves, but actually their customers, which was very concerning at the time. Yeah, so I want to I want to get deep down down into this. We got plenty of time. We got another two segments left, and and we're going to take a little time to go to a commercial break right now. But we'll be right back where I want to talk about more of the cases that you worked, what you learned from them, how hard was was it to actually you know, find these guys that you're talking about. And also I want to learn about what you're doing today. 
So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed, much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the Executive Vice President and Head of Q6's Cyber Intelligence Division, Robert Villanueva. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with my co-host, the CSO of BitGo, Tom Pagler, and Managing Director with Kroll, 
Paul Jackson. And of course, our special guest, former Secret Service agent and executive vice president with Q6 Cyber, Robert Villanueva. So, Tom, you know, we were talking about a lot of cases. I think, didn't you work a lot of cases with Robert uh, in, the, in the Secret Service? I know we worked a few cases together, the three of us. Yeah, Robert and I worked some uh, amazing cases. Uh, you know, as, as you said earlier, I was in the uh, Secret Service uh, out uh, running the Electronic Crunch Task Force in San Francisco. And Robert, remember, you were, the, uh, you were in charge of a whole uh, cyber division for the Secret Service, and uh, he was a supervisor. So Robert was the supervisor who'd go along on the cases. And uh, we actually apprehended some uh, Russian uh, and Ukrainian organized crime uh, heads. I think we grabbed one, where was it, uh, Robert? Got one in Cyprus and one in uh, Thailand and a lot of yep. blog trips uh, throughout the Eastern Bloc countries. Yeah, yeah, you got a great memory. Yes, of course, yeah. Thailand, I remember that. Some of these were pretty uh, notorious uh, threat actors, uh, Russian nationals, Ukrainian nationals, and they were uh, very involved. We're selling millions and millions of different types of credit cards on the dark web. Uh, so, you know, your office out in San Francisco and that task force did an excellent job in actually being able to identify them and indict them, uh, actually link them to all this fraud that was occurring and affecting, you know, different brands and different financial institutions in the U.S. So what, what, rings, to, what rings a bell to me is this cave case in Colombia. Oh. What, what was that about? I mean, I, I, you know, I, mean, I just remember people talking about the cave case. Oh, yes, yes. Well, We'll get we'll get back we'll go back to to Colombia now. So, and in South America, there's a lot of um, counterfeiting of U.S. currency that's uh, historical based, meaning they've been doing this for many years, uh, back in the '70s and '60s. So, the Secret Service keeps very very detailed records on not only um, the actual counterfeit uh, notes that you know, uh, not only their serial numbers but all the identifiers on the notes but also people who are responsible for the manufacturing and distribution of these notes. So in doing so, we do a lot of research and we actually start looking at specific individuals who have been arrested previously uh, for this type of activity. In doing so, uh, myself and a, and a colleague of mine, we actually identified a couple of families that had been responsible for millions upon millions of dollars of, of uh, being trafficked into the United States. And these guys were actually printers. They were manufacturing the actual notes and they had uh, trade, uh, trade skills as printers. So they were actually legitimate printers as well of different types of uh, books, for instance, in Colombia. So we actually looked at them, we targeted, targeted them through different undercover ops, uh, made some arrests, uh, which led to intelligence, right? And uh, different types of confidential sources and uh, it's a real long process. It took about, I don't know, a couple of years, if I recall correctly. But there was this fork lord, uh, this rumor that there was a manufacturing operation in a cave, in a cave. So all the bad guys will talk about the cave, the cave, the cave. Well, well one of the families we arrested, um, there was a guy by the name of Ramiro Sepulveda Duque. That's his name. And... Uh, it was all public record because he was actually indicted in the United States, believe it or not. So we were able to uh, find him, find his family, and through surveillance, able to identify where he was actually manufacturing counterfeit U.S. currency for over 15 years. 15 years, right? So in doing so, once the initial uh, ops were out of the way and the arrests occurred, I was down there personally for that. We actually traveled 
from Bogota down to Cali, Colombia, right? And uh, out in the, another hour and a half in the outskirts of Cali, Colombia, along with uh, both Colombian police and Colombian military, because that region uh, was actually the area we were in outside of Cali was very known for FARC, for uh, guerrilla activity. Uh, there were you know, local terrorists in the area that controlled that area. So in doing so, we actually found a, a farm that was owned by Ramiro Sepulveda Duque. He actually owned the property, okay? Well, we had a search warrant. The Colombians went in there and basically tore that farm apart. They could not find any kind of printing operation, any kind of uh, specifics regarding, um, you know, any kind of illegal activity. But in doing so, um, myself <laughs> and actually my colleague who were with them, assisting them, um, we stepped on something on the ground right outside the farm, like in the uh, garden area that sounded uh, kind of hot, like a metal, metal plate. Well, sure enough, it was a metal plate, which led to an underground bunker, right? Which we called the cave, which had running water, running electricity and a ventilation system, right? A ladder went down about 15 feet underground and went underneath. It was a dugout, uh, really large uh, area, I would say uh, a couple of rooms in it. So it was fairly large. And again, it had electricity. And in there, he had a offset printing press and over, over $5 million already printed in counterfeit U.S. currency <laughs> that we were able to seize and actually uh, apprehend before it came into the United States. So again, um, just by sheer persistence of the U.S. Secret Service, uh, do our due diligence, we're able to find this underground bunker, a.k.a. cave, that was being used for over 15 years for the manufacturing of counterfeit U.S. currency that was being smuggled into the U.S. The Secret Service find you anywhere, man. <laughs> hey, uh, Robert. Yeah, I think, Robert, you're tied, if you remember, uh, to the Columbia. You, uh, you orchestrated me going down there and uh, putting servers in Bogota, Cali, Medellin, where we could then, uh, that's how we track our, our bad guys, remember? So I would say uh, your international skills really are the reason I think we were so successful in the Secret Service in capturing these people. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate it, Tom. Yeah, yeah, you have a very good memory. Yeah, we, we actually you know, work very closely, you know, the United States in general, and the U.S. Embassy works very closely with the Colombian government. Uh, you know, they're obviously a partner of ours when it comes to disrupting all types of criminal activity to include, you know, the counterfeit currency and, and drug activity being smuggled into the U.S. So, yeah, I remember you uh, going down there and with me and we were able to... Uh, yep, you, you set it up, yeah. You, yeah, so, so just so everybody knows uh, on the radio, you know, as Robert said, you know, working uh, on counterfeit cases down there, but he made such good contact with the, the local government, local police. Uh, we were able to get them to help us with cases that weren't necessarily uh, focused on, you know, Colombian uh, issues. It was, it was more, you know, putting servers down there and then enticing uh, the fraudsters all over the world to, to thousands of servers or use them so we could capture their true IP addresses, their true location. Uh, so, you know, Robert, outstanding uh, the way you were able to, you know, take all that together and make it so we could, you know, be so effective. Yeah, thanks. Well, the key, as you know, Tom, you know, and Paul and George, the key to anything really is our relationships, right? So whether they're, you know, uh, police in Colombia or police in, in Russia or, or in Ukraine, I mean, there's, there's good, um, hardworking law enforcement uh, officials, uh, good people everywhere. So if you meet the right people, 
right? They do the right thing. So that's the key to know the right people, have those relationships established, and a network of people like that that would actually go that extra step and do the right thing and collaborate with you. That's exactly what Paul was saying. Hon- <laughs> yeah, I heard I heard the Hong Kong police are the best is what I heard, right, Paul? <laughs> oh, they're, they're absolutely the best, Tom. But, uh, you know, you know, I'm serious. You know, we, we did speak about this last week, and yeah. it's critical, those relationships. And unfortunately, what I've been seeing more recently is that, you know, there's too much too high turnover of the cops in, the, in in different locations, and building that trusted relationship is hard because, you know, you, you talk to them one minute, the next minute they're working at, I don't know, uh, J.P. Morgan or something. So it's, it's kind of hard to... Uh, to keep that continuity going. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for law enforcement right now. Because, you know, just being able to pick up the phone and, and get somebody you know and trust in another country is just, you know, it's, it's priceless. Yes, and I agree, Paul, because there's all sorts of mutual legal assistance treaties and all types of paperwork and formalities between governments. But like you said, you pick up the phone, you call somebody, you send them that quick little email or that message. And I'll tell you what, that goes a long way and expedite things and makes things uh, much more efficient, and, uh, and, and that's the way you do business, uh, to be quite frank. I mean, one of the things that the Secret Service does very well is that it establishes uh, these electronic crime task forces like, like Tommy should lead out in San Francisco, which is a joint partnership between the private and public sector. So on there you have Secret Service, you have other federal agencies on there, like you know the FBI and uh, HSI, but also local law enforcement and private sector individuals, which is, is a key component to working together, especially when it comes to technology and some of these cyber crimes, because nobody has one silver bullet or the only answer. It's a combination and a collaboration between the different agencies and law enforcement that actually makes a difference to get ahead of these, you know, bad guys. So, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't mention Operation Firewall and the takedown of Shadow Crew back Mm -hmm. in 2004, I think it was. Um, Both Tom and I worked that case with you. I mean, we could do a whole series of shows on it if we wanted to, not only one show, but probably a whole series, maybe three shows on it, uh, of just talking about what happened in that case. But just... You know, for a few minutes, give our audience your view of, of that case and what went down. Yeah, well, you know, hats off to, you know, you, George, Tom, and to the guys in Newark who worked that case. It was a um, first of its kind. So this was back in 2004, 2000, right, 2003, 2004 when it started. And, and Operation Firewall was basically the targeting of a notorious website called Shadow Creek. Shadow Crew was actually the um, premier website at the time uh, that had English speakers. It had over, I believe, over 4,000 individuals uh, dedicated to cybercrime. So you had all types of individuals there, people doing phishing attacks, spammers, but you had a very large presence of Eastern European cybercriminals as well that were stealing you know, all types of credit cards. They were hacking into data, uh, all types of uh, breaches that were occurring, hacking into uh, infrastructure worldwide. So, I mean, we were very fortunate, you know, and I was in headquarters at the time heading our cyber intelligence section and was very familiar with the website Shadow Crew. So when you guys in Newark apprehended, you know, that individual uh, that was actually cashing out at ATMs, we were able to actually uh, do a lot with that and we were able to actually further the case along because... Um, if I recall correctly, I mean, it was a, a multi-month uh, investigation over a year. You guys worked 24-7 on that case out of the New York office, no, sorry, New York field office, and we're able to basically uh, infiltrate that website, um, identify key players around the world 
that were basically doing all types of uh, cybercrime and were responsible for all types of computer fraud and intellectual property fraud worldwide. Uh, and actually, we're able to arrest over 28, 30 people in that case worldwide in uh, multiple states within the United States and over six countries. So this was all done simultaneously, you know, between, uh, it was a Secret Service uh, operation fully, uh, to be quite frank. And um, we were able to, to apprehend all these individuals simultaneously worldwide. And we actually sent Secret Service agents to each one of these countries and obviously in all the states to obviously execute these warrants, whether it was search warrant or arrest warrants, and made a major dent, major dent in cybercrime. And it was the first time ever that a uh, criminal network, a criminal network online was actually infiltrated and penetrated by, by U.S. law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was a big collective effort out of the Newark field office. There was a lot of guys there was a lot of guys that pick up the rotation for the guys who are actually working the case. And what that means is that we were all on a rota and we all um, went on the schedule where we all had to travel for executive protection work, wherever that may be around the world. And if you're going to take a group of guys off to work a case full time, 24 uh, seven inside this warehouse in Jersey city, like literally seven days a week, yep. um, you're going to someone's going to have to pick up their rotation. Someone's going to have to pick up their assignments. And that means that, there was someone that was away from their family, someone that was away from their loved ones and their children uh, to make that case work. So there was a lot of people that made a lot of sacrifice in the Secret Service to get that, that, that case to work. And it wasn't just agents. It was their family members uh, and their loved ones. And so, and for that, you know, at that time, I was especially grateful. That was a special case because that was the first Title III wiretap on an internet-facing computer network in United States history. Yep. And you know, it infiltrated an organized crime group. And it was kind of just by, it was by luck that we ran into the, 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 um, the, the actual uh, person who was uh, our confidential informant. And so I got to tell you, there's a whole story behind that. We could, we can get into that. I mean, we could talk forever about what happened in that. There's so many things. I mean, that, that was a pretty long case. Um, it, it, it lasted for a little bit over a year, I believe. Um, but we're, maybe I'll bring you back to, to like get into more of a deep dive with that too. Maybe we should take Pablo on with us. Pablo should come on and, and talk about it. Cause you know, without his support at headquarters, we know that would have never went down. Um, but you can't talk about shadow crew without talking about the TJ Maxx data breach and on the Albert Gonzalez arrest. So what say you about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. That's uh that's a really, um, complicated type of story, but you're right. I mean, the sacrifices that family members and agents make uh, in the Secret Service, people, people don't really realize it's not as glamorous as it, as it you know, seems all the time because you're away from your family a lot, you're traveling a lot. So the family also makes a real big sacrifice. But again, dedication is very important. And, you know, the folks in the Secret Service, the agents, you know, the analysts that work there, the, you know, the officers that work there, it's um, a, a big sacrifice and a team effort. And in this case, again, the Newark office, in conjunction with the other offices and headquarters, you know, did a great job for, with Operation Firewall. And again, made, a, I think, a real big impact. Uh, and it disrupted, the, the main thing, George, it disrupted the criminal community. They, they were um, beside themselves for a very long time, not understanding how this could have been done, what happened, how people in, you know, overseas in Eastern European countries were being arrested 
right, locally by local law enforcement uh, based on their criminal activities, which they thought they were basically invincible. They were untouchable. They were not recognizable. Nobody knew who they were because they were using these nicknames. But again, we proved them uh, wrong. And again, hats off to you and to the folks in Newark who did a, an excellent job with that case. Now, when it, when it comes to TJ Maxx, again, that's a whole different thing in Albert Gonzalez. Again, um, Albert Gonzalez did work, you know, as it's publicly known for the Secret Service for a while. Um, he, and he um, you know, he was doing a real good job. I mean, he was very uh, detail-oriented and all that. Very smart individual, to be quite frank. Uh, Self-taught when it came to computer science. Um, you know, knew the internet very well, knew the way it worked, knew specifics about the criminal underground um, so he was a very, very uh, astute individual. He happened to be from South Florida, too, from Miami, where I'm from. So we uh, actually uh, had that in common, you know, uh, culturally and everything else, too. But he um, was, you know, working again for the service for a while, and then he stopped working for the Secret Service, right? And uh, actually was, uh, led, you know, went back to his uh, criminal exploits, <laughs> because of uh, financial means and financial gain. I mean, a lot of these folks who, who do this, I've seen that are you know, either actual you know, hackers or malware writers or even some of the vendors of, of, of uh, card data, they're making so much money, George, that it's hard for them to stop. And when they get apprehended, many of them go back to that sort of life, right? Because it's easy money for them. And that was a problem with Gonzalez, right? That was the issue with Gonzalez. You know, he worked for the government for a while. And, okay, you get, you know, government pay. It's not the same thing as making a lot of money by doing criminal activity. So he, you know, came back to South Florida after, you know, he stopped working for the Secret Service. And he started actually... Uh, targeting different types of infrastructure, uh, wireless infrastructure at the time, you know, through packet sniffers, basically he was, you know, spoofing and and doing all types of uh, uh, trades uh, down up and down US one down in Miami to steal all types of um, credit card data that was actually not encrypted at the time, you know. Uh, but TJ Maxx was one of his victims. David Buster's and a, a slew of other uh, local retailers, or actually national retailers. But um, he was smart, but he was not that smart, to be quite honest. You know, he slipped up here and there. And, um, you know, it was brought actually to the attention of headquarters. I was there at the time. You know, we, we were able to identify who was doing some of this activity in Miami. I was in, uh, in Washington, and uh, we said, yeah, uh, he's a cyber criminal. He's going to be uh, treated as, uh, as such. And uh, actually out of Boston, a criminal indictment came down. We worked in the Boston office and the Miami office, who was doing the surveillances at the time, because he was down in Miami, here where I'm, where I'm at, and we're able to actually catch him doing something, and establish a probable cause, uh, identify some of his crew, but they were a pretty sophisticated uh, crew that was doing cybercrime worldwide, and what Albert was doing, he was stealing all his credit cards. We're talking about, oh, more than a 170 million, I believe, credit cards were stolen from 2005, six 2007 around that time period um and sold he would resell them back to eastern european threat actors who were vendors on these different criminal websites that exist so he's basically supplying them with the information in turn selling it. he was making a lot of money i mean he uh allegedly threw himself a, a, a birthday party for you know a few uh hundred thousand dollars up in new york uh partying up you know doing all sorts of things 
with that, those sort of proceeds. But again, it was one of those things that he, um, he became a bad guy because that's what he knew. And uh, basically greed, you know, greed was the one who, who led him to that. And now he, you know, he was sentenced, I believe, uh, or pled guilty to over 20 years, and he's sitting in jail right now, somewhere in the Midwest, now away from uh, South Florida, to be quite frank. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, you know he's a very interesting guy. Uh, he was a, you know this small skinny kid uh, that was you know brilliant in the way he thought about things. Um, it was interesting watching the way he actually just worked uh, when he was uh, you know when, when he was on, he was interacting with these organized crime groups, and. It's, you know, he was on his way to re- resurrecting his life and he could have, he could have had a, you know, a, a wonderful life. And he actually chose to go back to the dark side and ended up now serving what, which was, I think at the time, the largest sentence of any cyber crime in the history of the United States. I mean, what a, what a turn of events, you know, what, what I find, uh, you know, and you're right about, you know, the, the reach of the Secret Service. I mean, I think it was about, I think it was like 27 people in seven states and six countries at once. It just took everybody down at once. And we had satellites watching and, and it was just, it was a big operation. And, you know, people had guns and, you know, people kind of think of these, you know, cybercrime guys as sitting around having geeks. But we had, we had SWAT teams hitting these houses. Yes. There was drugs. There was guns involved. There was, oh, I think there was a, one, one person jumped out of a window and got to a car. And I think there was a motor vehicle pursuit. If I remember correctly, uh, I think that was out maybe in Arizona. I'm not sure. My memory's a little fuzzy, but you know, it was a uh, it was a lot of work. I mean, we had different SWAT teams for each team, uh, for each for each target, and it was a big operation. Um, you know, and, and it ended up being you know he, he, he was on his way to you know resurrecting his life, I think, and then he just you know was back to the dark side, and 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 that's it. They just can't leave. You know, when he got arrested, from what I understand, and I I you know I had left the private sector or left the left the uh, the government to work in the private sector. And I think when he got arrested down in Miami, my understanding that it was all roided up and he had a Glock on him and everything. That's not the guy I know, but these are cyber crime guys. So allegedly that you think with, you know, their little hoodies and sitting behind a desk and the guy's walking around with a Glock, right? Yes. I yes. Mean, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not, it's not what you actually see um, maybe on social media and some of, the, some of those other places. This can get to be some very dangerous stuff. Um, how about the the, the Maxique operation out of Turkey? I mean, I, I thought it was Tom that worked it, but maybe maybe it was uh, I think it was Andy Manila that worked that case, maybe um, out of Turkey. Uh, regardless, you know, you worked that case, uh, Maxique uh, operation, no? Yeah, yeah, I was actually the the supervisor out of out of headquarters of the case for that case. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty interesting case. I mean, you're right about Albert Gonzalez. You know, I actually came down from headquarters down in Miami for the arrests when they occurred. And when I saw him, you know, um, you know, he was definitely roided up. He was on, you know, on the juice. He was uh, doing all sorts of steroids, all sorts of drugs. And, and the funny, uh, I'll tell you, the funny thing is that when, um, you know, he was actually arrested at a hotel in Miami Beach by a poolside, right? And when he saw me from the distance, you know, he knew who I was, obviously. And he saw, you know, he knew I lived in D.C., he knew who I was and all that. So when he saw me coming from a distance, he, uh, he just put his head down, you know, because uh, <laughs> he, he knew what was happening. So yeah, he knew kinda, why you were there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of irony. But anyway, back to Maxique. So, yes, Maxique, yes, his name is Yasri Maxime. He was actually um, a Ukrainian national that was vending credit cards worldwide. So... Um, he, um, was actually one of Albert's customers, believe it or not. 
Meaning right, right. The, the data that Albert was stealing, these credit card data, he was reselling that information to Maxic. That's his nickname, Maxic. So um, we, we targeted Maxic um, and we were looking at him and he would travel a lot. So he happened to go to Turkey, right? Uh, this is around 2006, more or less around there. I'm trying to remember, or five. But he, um, he traveled to Turkey, and he stayed at Antalya, which is a resort, a beautiful resort you know, in, in Turkey, um, uh, with a lot of actually East Europeans going on vacation. And uh, we found out he was going over there, so we contacted the Turkish police, uh, myself and, uh, and some folks um, from actually from California uh, went out there. Uh, the case was worked out of, out of California, out of the San Diego office. And, uh, you know, uh, found Maxik and his associates were looking at him, you know, and again, the, the, the objective of the trip was, you know, to uh, have him arrested, right, and eventually extradited since he was a Ukrainian national in Turkey. But the guy, the knucklehead, when he was there in Turkey, he couldn't resist. He hacked into a Turkish financial institution while in Turkey. Well, guess what? The Turkish police found out about that, and uh, they kept them there for a while. <laughs> so, you know, the arrest, the arrest occurred. You know, we had uh, folks there to support that, myself and some other folks from San Diego, like I said. But the Turkish officials did the right thing. They arrested Mexic, and uh, we're going to eventually extradite him, but he served some time in, in Turkey. And those Turkish prisons, you know, uh, as sure as you heard of that movie, is it uh, the Midnight Express, right? Is it? Yeah. Talks about the Turkish prison. That's exactly what it's like. So justice was served huh. with Max Sick. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Robert. Uh, yeah, this is Paul again. Your, your stories are really putting my crocodile and Chubb's adventures, you know, from last week in the shade. Great stories. This is fascinating stuff. Um, but on a serious note, though, um, the, uh, do you, what do you think? The, do you think the criminals are learning lessons from these stories? Because, you know, as you, as you said, they're all in the public domain. And, uh, you know, are they, are they getting better, do you think, at evading enforcement? Yeah, I mean, criminals are very sophisticated. You know, nobody's in a, no true criminal is, you know, worth his weight is going to be coming in from his true IP or his home static IP, right? They all use proxies, they all use VPNs. So it's very hard to, you know, identify people behind the keyboard, but they all slip up. And I don't want to give out specific trade craft or anything like that on, you know, a radio show or anywhere else on the press. But, but you know, they slip up, they get greedy, they do dumb things, you know, and, you know, the Secret Service and other federal agencies, uh, you know, worldwide are there basically to, to try to catch those mistakes, right? Catch them. And greed is one thing. They get very confident. They get very cocky. So, yeah, it does work, Paul, to answer your question. Disruption works. Apprehension works. But there's so many of these cyber criminals, and they all have specific skill sets, by the way. You have malware writers who write malware. That's their, you know, these people are uh, obviously college-educated, computer science degrees, PhDs in computer science, and they're writing malware, I mean, on a daily basis. Uh, Trojans, viruses, there's so much of it out there. Then you have the folks who actually are hacking, the ones who are doing the intrusions. Another skill set. Right? And then you have the people who are vending the data that these hackers stole, whether it's access to a network or whether it's you know, credit card data or personal information. Right? And then you have the people who actually are buying the data from these vendors right? and exploiting the data and cashing in and monetizing the data. Right? Whether it's a debit card with somebody's PIN number. Right? Everybody's gotten that call before right? as far as, uh, okay, you need to get that uh, debit card reissued by your bank because it's been compromised. Well, 
that's where it's coming from primarily, right? These big, large data breaches that occur, uh, and they happen worldwide. Well, the scary thing, Paul, is that all these people are on criminal websites dedicated to one thing, cybercrime. They're all on there. There's thousands of these people on there, all on these sites communicating amongst each other. They communicate very efficiently, very rapidly. They help each other. They assist each other. And they're all there on these sites. And there's hundreds of these sites. I mean, so it's very hard to arrest these people. Uh, and depending on the country where you arrest them, first of all, there's different jurisdictions. So if you don't get them back to, you know, the U.S. or the U.K., Australia, places that have very strong uh, laws and, and cybercrime, um, it's very hard to actually um, make, make a, a, a big dent. So you get, again, the folks that are most notorious, the ones that do, um, you know, uh, real bad things like Maxic, you know, like, like Albert Gonzalez, like other individuals, you know, who, uh, like Vladimir Drinkman is another a Russian national, actually, who hacked into, you know, some critical infrastructure in the U.S. People like that, you know, those are the people that you apprehend and you make an example of, you, you disrupt some of this activity because, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, and challenging, but not impossible. Yeah, that's exactly how we see it at this side of the world as well. And it's kind of sad to say that organized crime is, well, getting more organized, right? Yes. Yeah, so I think it's uh, for any law enforcement officer to disrespect their adversary and not respect their capabilities is a big mistake. Very big mistake. Um, yeah. And that's why you never hear us do that. Um, you know, never disrespect your adversary. These guys are very capable people or smart people. Uh, they're, they're very organized. Um, and so, and they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, um, they're very intelligent, right? They're very intelligent people. So it's going to take a, a lot of thought and, uh, to win that battle. And, and, and these are, you know, all kinds of different groups around the world that we're talking about. So why don't we just d dive into that a little bit? We're running a little bit long, but I, I don't care. So, it, it, so give us your view on current, the, the current climate with um, Eastern European criminal websites and shops and the, the significance that they have on cybercrime, uh, the cybercrime market today. Yeah, they're alive and well, uh, George, uh, to be quite frank. We're seeing a huge uh, increase when it comes to all types of malware. So like credential stealing malware, like Voltrek, Azralt, um, these are all Russian-based uh, uh, malware writers who are in this type of malware, they, they steal credentials. Basically, you know, they compromise user credentials. So they infect your computer. There's a big spam campaign, as everybody knows. Uh, everybody's always being told, don't click on that link, right? Uh, those phishing links that are being sent through email, well, there's a reason for that. I mean, I would say close to almost 75, 80% of the malware, the way it affects your machines and computers worldwide is through these phishing emails. And once that email, you know, you click on that link and that email and that phishing email and that virus is downloading your computer, then it owns your computer and it's basically grabbing all your credentials. So when you go onto your banking website or you go onto an e-commerce or a merchant site and you're inputting your username, your password, that malware is capturing all that information. It's harvesting it. It's harvesting your IP address, your sessions, and it's all being sent through a sophisticated network of botnets, basically, worldwide, back to command and control servers overseas. And the bad guys are collecting this information, and they're going to try to exploit that, those credentials any way they can. So we, we're seeing, again, a dramatic increase when it comes to account takeovers being uh, performed through malware. The other thing we're seeing too is a lot of data breaches. They're still occurring because uh, all, you know, any kind of payment card is a commodity on the dark web. 
they monetize it. So if they can hack into these, you know, these local data bridges you hear about all the time, whether it's a restaurant, a hotel chain worldwide, you know, I could be uh, anywhere in the world and exploit this data, right? So we see bad guys basically when they're when this when these breaches occur within a few hours, you know, these different uh, types of uh, payment cards are being uploaded for sale, being trafficked on the dark web on some of these websites. Some are private forums, and some of them are public forums, right? And through the you know the bin numbers, you can see that you can see the bank identification numbers of these financial institutions worldwide being exploited. And we see bad guys, you know, they could be anywhere in the world trying to use this, whether they're in Hong Kong, like Paul, you know, where Paul's at, or anywhere else, or up in you know up in up northeast Georgia where you're at. Uh, we're out in the, in, the, in the West Coast, you know, where Tom's at. I mean, we, we see them using the credit card data within minutes sometimes of them being uploaded in different, uh, in different places, different locations, trying to get capitalized on that type of data. So both, you know, when it comes to payment cards, right, and account takeovers through compromised credentials, that's where we're seeing a big increase. And now that I'm in the private sector, I'm seeing even more trying to assist financial institutions worldwide to try to combat this. How about malware developers, Robert? I mean, how, how much chaos are they raining down on corporations with banking trojans and keyloggers and such? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's obviously, you know, the, the, the main thing, the nucleus of all of this. These malware developers are coming up with new variants and new types of malware, whether they're, I say, credential grabbers, you know, like I mentioned before, or keyloggers, uh, basically daily, daily. It's, it's, it, the, new malware comes out daily. That's why any viruses companies are always a little bit behind to be quite frank and they're constantly updating their signatures uh, to try to you know find the you know, new malware that's out there so you have all types of uh, the whole industry actually out there looking and searching for new types of malware there that are out there infecting computers worldwide any kind of device you know whether it's your mobile phone by the way too right or your actual computer whether it's a mac or you know it's windows a windows operating system but it's, it's a very lucrative industry, and it's a billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar industry uh, as far as a crimeware. Crimeware is a real big deal, right? That's something that um, uh, bad guys are monetizing. Again, there's a big, you know, you know these different uh, malware, you know, is being sold and resold to different threat actors worldwide so they can actually hack in to different computers. They actually could, you know, de deploy the malware to phishing campaigns worldwide and, and the spammers. Again, that's another multi-billion dollar industry. So, so uh, again, they're very, look, you know, for the most part, they all have specific skill sets. And the malware writers are very unique, very intelligent, very highly educated, highly motivated, and they want the money. So there's a, there's a demand. Robert, we got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after these short messages, folks. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. 
Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with my co-host, the CSO of BitGo, Tom Pageler out of San Francisco, and Managing Director with Kroll, Paul Jackson out of Hong Kong. And of course, our special guest, former Secret Service agent and Executive Vice President of Q6, Cyber, Robert Villanueva. So Robert, we've told some war stories, we've visited some old times, but in this segment, I want to jump into the president and talk about your role at Q6 and what you're doing over there. So uh, what do you got going on over there? What do you do every day? Well, it's uh, interesting you, you asked that because the way that uh, Q6 runs and is operated is, is a very um, unique concept. So it's a cybersecurity company with a focus on cyber intelligence. And uh, being that I worked in the government so many years, I worked very closely with financial institutions and I always saw that, you know, they, they were getting a lot of, you know, noise and uh, all types of in- supposedly intel from different vendors and different folks that wasn't very actionable, you know. So one of the things that we did, you know, when I came over to, to Q6, um, and I'll get more into the specifics, was actually um, make it a concerted effort to give our customers, uh, which are mostly financial institution investment firms, by the way, actionable and targeted intelligence. So what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, um, Q6, by the way, it's a global company. We have offices in South Florida where I'm at. Uh, I've been with the company for two years already, um, and I head operations uh, and business development at, at the company. Um, but we're a global company. We have offices in Tel Aviv and Israel, in San Jose, Costa Rica. Um, we have folks that are engineer, engineers, basically. Um, uh, some of the engineering team actually I brought over uh, their former colleagues of ours that work for the government, too. 
um, over actually uh, at, at NSA, to be you know, quite frank. It's on our website, so I'll say it. <laughs> so uh, they develop all our technology. Uh, we also have analysts that speak multiple languages, by the way, too, that uh, speak Russian, all types of uh, different languages. And what we do, what we do well, right, um, is monitor the dark web and certain websites, which I mentioned before, or private forums that are known for criminal activity and are dedicated to criminal activity and targeting, right, different financial institutions or different um, sectors that are our customers, all right? So what exactly do I mean? Some of these folks um, are, I mean, these exclusive sites that are very hard to penetrate. So we have, again, very unique capabilities that we can do that, both from a technical um, perspective, but also from a human perspective, meaning our analysts will actually chat with these folks online, know their techniques, their tactics, their procedures. And if they're targeting a certain financial institution, we'll find out how they're doing it, why they're doing it, and if there's a vulnerability, we'll let them know about it, which is very a very unique niche that we have. But again, we're seeing, like I mentioned before, data breaches occurring on a daily basis worldwide, and the uploading of payment cards, for instance, on a lot of these sites. So, uh, you know, if, if Bank X, for instance, is our customer, right, and we see, you know, this real-time uploading of their, uh, you know, their bins or bank identification numbers, we'll alert them, we'll let them know what's going on. We'll actually provide them a lot of this data, these accounts. Many times we're able to see, and we're able to see a lot of this data, and we're able to tell them what's going on. So they get ahead of the fraud before the fraud occurs, which is very significant. The other thing we do, we do well, is monitor all types of criminal infrastructure. I mentioned before about malware, malware developers, and these botnets. You know, they're occurring worldwide. There's thousands of these botnets, right, that are dedicated to cyber crime, and they're part of a very sophisticated criminal infrastructure worldwide. Most of them go back to Eastern Europe. But again, a lot of the compromised credentials and a lot of the, you know, uh, that are, are the account takeovers that a lot of these financial institutions and investment firms are, are facing are from these, you know, credential grabbers and from these different types of criminal infrastructure that are trafficking these corporate credentials. And again, we're able to see a lot of that, again, from a technical capability, as well as from a... Um, and a little capability, and everything is done in-house, by the way. We don't outsource a thing. Everything's done inside with our engineering team and our analysts, our developers. Um, and again, we're a pretty, pretty high-tech uh, company, a pretty unique company, to be quite frank, uh, doing very well. I've been with the company already since I retired from the Secret Service. I literally took a week off from government work and drove right into it, and I'm the executive vice president of a very uh, prosperous and very uh, forward-thinking company that um, I'm very, um, very lucky to be a part of. So that's great, Robert. It, are the languages that, that these people use in the forums, is that still a, a, a problem for intelligence folks? I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's Russian, there's Spanish, there's a whole bunch of different languages. How much of a problem is that for you guys? Well, it's not a problem because we hire, uh, we, we vet everybody, by the way, very, very uh, highly at the company, Q6 Cyber. And we, we actually are... Uh, you know, always looking for new talent. We're always hiring. As a matter of fact, we're hiring our engineering teams and uh, also analysts that speak multiple languages. Um, and if you go to q6cyber.com, that's our website, letter Q number six, right? q6cyber.com will, you know, you actually look at um, the prerequisites to apply. Uh, and we're actively hiring now. So and if you know anybody, that'd be great. But it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a little bit challenging. But again, you have to find the right person uh, that reads Cyrillic, for instance, right? But we have several people that actually read 
write, understand the Russian language, you know, the Slavic languages as well, the Spanish language, French, Arabic, um, even Mandarin. So uh, multiple languages. We have analysts that speak multiple languages. I myself, I speak multiple languages as well. Um, but we, it's, it's very important in today's environment, especially with cyber criminals, because, you know, they're, they're around the world. Sometimes they try to hide behind the language, right, thinking nobody can understand what they're saying, you know, try to uh, – be within their own communities, but we are able to actually infiltrate a lot of those uh, undercover, uh, under, underground forms and undercover capacity, and uh, are very good at doing it and monitoring this criminal activity for some very large companies. I mean, I would say three out of the you know top seven or eight uh, financial institutions uh, in the world are our customers right now, which is great. Uh, we've been around only for about three years now, a company, but. Uh, it's a, a very exciting space to be in, uh, very demanding, and the work we're doing is very, um, very uh, for me personally, very rewarding because we're actually doing something positive to help, you know, especially U.S. Uh, victims of cybercrime and all types of fraud uh, to try to, again, do something about it in a proactive fashion. So this seems like a, a, a very important capability that most organizations need. How important and do you feel it is to have this intelligence capability, especially in the financial and retail sectors? Well, it depends on the size of the financial institution. So some of our customers, like I said, are very large financial institutions, multi-billion dollar you know, uh, companies that have resources, they have assets, right? Um, and they have, uh, some of them do have uh, dedicated cyber teams, right? Cyber intel teams. And they, we actually work with those teams to provide them information because there's so much information out there. So and there's also limitations between different financial institutions, but a smaller credit union, for instance, isn't going to have those resources, that type of funding. So we will provide the same you know, type of intel to those credit unions because they're also being victimized. You know, when it comes to you know, financial fraud you know, and these data breaches, remember, a lot of times they're not targeting one specific financial institution. They're targeting a restaurant, a hotel. So any customer who has used their payment card at that establishment, if there's a breach, a merchant breach, whether it's online, an online merchant or a brick and mortar place, they could be victimized. So it could be any, any financial institution. It could be a small you know, credit union, like I said. It could be a very large bank. But they all had the same common issue is the fraud that's going to occur on that account and whether they're going to catch it in time. So that's why we at QSIC Cyber, we provide that information to them real time almost so they can actually prevent the fraud from actually occurring and they can flag the accounts and they can actually disrupt the activity and get ahead of the fraud, which I think is very significant. So Robert, it's great to have you on the show. I appreciate you, appreciate Q6. Glad, you know, I appreciate the war stories. It was a great show. I hope to have you back soon. Anytime, George uh, and Tom, Paul, it was great talking to you guys tonight. Let, uh, let me know if you ever want to be coming back, if you want me to get more detail or want a specific uh, story, maybe about Tom, you know? Uh, no, <laughs> oh, we, got lots of, we got lots of stories about him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll be more than glad, I'll be more than glad to uh, participate. I think what you're doing, George, is great. This podcast is awesome. I wish you the best of luck. I think it's going to catch on like wildfire. I mean, I'm going to put it personally on LinkedIn. Like I said, I got over 16,000 followers on there. So uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of me through LinkedIn also, they could get a hold of me that way. But uh, I think you're doing a great job and, uh, you know, Godspeed to you. Thank you very much. All right, folks, we run out of time again. Before I go, I'll remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CS hub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice 
of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 